Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. If you're in your 40s, maybe 50s, maybe 30s, you probably remember growing up watching TGIF on ABC. Who remembers watching TGIF, okay? Um, So just, I have to do this now. Back then, back in the 90s, you couldn't just binge watch a program, okay? There wasn't streaming services. Back in the day, you had to You had to schedule your schedule around what was on the television unless you had one of those fancy VCRs that you could set in advance to record the program. Now those are called DVRs. Back then they were called VCRs. And uh, in order for that to work though, you had to get the clock right. And that's where it took a, a, a rocket scientist to get the clock right on the VCR. So you had to plan around your favorite programs and Friday night back in the 90s, some of the funniest TV was on ABC on TGIF. And there's one show that I always remember watching and it was Family Matters. And even if you don't remember it or never even saw the show, you've probably heard of or have clear memories of of the unofficial star of the show, Steve Urkel. Uh, he was, that character was played by Jaleel White. For the record, playing this character ruined his career. He got typecasted into this and, and could not break out of it. And I have to do this. The actor who played Steve Urkel is 47 years old today. So if that helps you at all. Uh, man, it's just a feel-good show. It was an all-black family that lived in Chicago, but you didn't have CRT or Black Lives Matter or you didn't have any racist overtones or undertones. You didn't have any of those things in the program. The dad in the show was a cop and you didn't have the we hate the police or the defund the police stuff. None of that stuff existed in the show. It was just a funny show about a decent family with a quirky neighbor and they were just solving the normal problems that families in the 90s faced. And it was good TV. It was good to be able to sit down and watch it. But I remember the, the theme song, though. You, the, theme th- the theme song started, you had this fun rip on the piano, and then you got the opening line. It's a rare condition this day and age to read any good news on the newspaper page. Love and tradition of the grand design, some people say it's even harder to find. Some of y'all are singing it. I can, t- I can hear you. I can hear you. You know what? That show and its family-friendly, family-focused theme song would never be made in 2024. That show would never be made today with so much of what we face in this day and time. As I was thinking about our scripture today, it occurred to me that the television producers of Jeremiah's day, that he didn't have them, but if he did, um, they probably wouldn't find much value in a show like Family Matters either because Jeremiah has been full of bad news. It's not his fault though. He didn't sign up for the job. It's not like Jeremiah applied for the position of prophet of doom for the nation of Israel. That was not what he signed up for. He was called by God and and he didn't get a lot of say in the matter. He didn't sign up or apply for the job. And there's no doubt all this bad news is taking a toll on the emotional health of the prophet. There's a reason he's called the weeping prophet. 
But we shouldn't despair completely because we know that Jeremiah's got good news coming. We talked about that back on Christmas Eve. I skipped ahead and looked at the good news that, that even Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, did not lose. There is a king coming, and he is so different from the kings of Judah. He is not like these wicked kings. He is a good king. He is a righteous king. He is a king that we need, and we know that that king is named Jesus. And if you're in Christ today, I have good news for you. Regardless of what bad news Jeremiah brings, you're already part of the kingdom, and that king reigns and rules over you. And that's good news for you today. But one of the things that the Old Testament does, the Old Testament is very is painfully honest about the spiritual condition of things. No punches poiled. You're not gonna read through Jeremiah and think, man, he sure took it easy on them. No, Jeremiah is honest. Jeremiah is certain. And Jeremiah is, is, is completely to the point here. And the darkness that Jeremiah is dealing with here, it's painted in matte black tones so that the light, when it finally appears, is evident to all, which is why Isaiah 9, that prophet tells us that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That same phrase is echoed by Matthew in the fourth chapter of his gospel, the light light is Jesus and we can see the light because it's such a contrast to the darkness. But this morning we flip back to Jeremiah chapter seven again and the darkness that we're going to encounter here is painfully evident. We're in Jeremiah chapter seven. We're going to start here at about verse 16. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read the words here from Jeremiah chapter seven, beginning in verse 16. As for you, do not do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or a prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire and the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? It is not themselves. Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I didn't speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards, not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak these, all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Father, I thank you for hard words. And Lord, they meet us in hard places. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be a people who are committed not just to the, the show of religion, but to obedience to our Savior. 
help us to understand the words of the prophet here and heed his warnings today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, be seated. When we last dealt with Jeremiah 7, we call this Jeremiah's temple sermon. He is standing on the temple steps and he is proclaiming this sermon to the people, but it's not going well for him. God's already said, hey, they're not gonna listen to you. I'll just be honest, if, if, if I walked in on a Sunday morning and, and Jacob or Foster came up to me and said, hey, Brian, I know you worked hard on this sermon, but there ain't nobody in this church gonna listen to you, it'd be hard to go ahead and preach that. It'd be, I, I'd, I'll stay in my office, y'all sing the songs and, and we're just gonna pretend I didn't do anything. It'd be hard. And so Jeremiah's preaching this sermon and nobody's listening. He's at the center of religious activity and he doesn't have anything good to say about the devotion of these people. He's already been trying to find a righteous person in the city. He can't find one, not among the needy, not among the wealthy. But this evaluation of the moral and spiritual character of the nation is gonna take an even darker turn here. And it begins with a very alarming instruction. Those first words, did you hear what he said? As for you, do not pray for these people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, God says, for I will not hear you. Those are hard words. Do not pray for them. At first reading, you may be hearing Jeremiah here and maybe you're identifying with the sentiment that he's expressed. Maybe there's somebody in your life who has hurt you to the point. There is someone who has angered you to the point. There is somebody in your life that if you're honest, you would look at and say, I don't want to pray for them anyway. So you receive what Jeremiah says here and say, man, finally, the Bible gives me permission to not pray for that person. I don't have to say something good to them. Uh, I don't have to say something to God about them. I don't have to pray for them. I think it's important to remember that these words are Jeremiah's command for Jeremiah's time. It's not a command that's echoed to all believers of all time. This is a particular instruction to a, based on a particular set of circumstances. And God knew the situation better than anybody. He had already warned Jeremiah about what the outcome was going to be. God knew that Judah and Jerusalem would not listen. God knew that the only outcome would be the fires of judgment. And for Jeremiah to pray anything contrary, for him to pray knowingly against what God had declared would have him praying against, against the purposes of God. And listen, none of us want to be in a position where we are actively praying against the purposes of God. We don't wanna be in that position. And so Jeremiah has been warned, do not intercede for these people because doing so puts you actively in against the purposes of God. Now, there may have been prayers that would have been appropriate for Jeremiah to pray. Maybe for God's glory to be known in the midst of judgment or maybe for God's justice to be executed and people to see that and repent. Maybe that would have been appropriate prayers. But the command that Jeremiah has given here not to pray is our instructions for Jeremiah's time. But it begs the question, what is our command? If Jeremiah's command is, is not to pray, not to intercede, not to lift up a prayer for these people, what is, what is our command? This is where the gospel changes things. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25 teaches us that our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, makes intercession for us. He, it says he lives to make intercession for us. I don't pretend to understand the logistics of how Jesus is interceding for us. I do not pretend to understand what it looks like for the savior to be praying for us. I do not know. But what I do understand that if Jesus is interceding, then so ought we. 
You have a child that's gone astray, pray. You have a spouse that's struggling, pray. You've got a friend who's lost their way, pray. The prodigals, the doubters, the backsliders, the rebellious, we pray. That's what we do. As long as Jesus intercedes, so ought we. But secondly, the Bible teaches us 1 Timothy chapter 2, for instance, that it is good and pleasing in the sight of God for us to offer things like supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving for all people. All people, there's that three-letter word again, for all people. God delights when we pray for others. He says in that same chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires... <clears throat> all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All that to say, Jeremiah was told not to pray, but you and I can't really apply that same instruction today in the age of the gospel because we are called to be a praying people even to, for the hardest people to pray for. We're told to pray for those who persecute us. We're told to, to, to pray for our neighbors, told to pray for our enemies. We're to pray for those, those difficult people. Why is there a shift though? How can you go from Jeremiah, don't pray for these people, to us with the instructions clearly to pray? How is there a difference between what the Old Testament is teaching and how the New Testament clearly is celebrating intercession? That's because judgment against sin has been poured out at the cross already. Judgment's not at the gates of Jerusalem. Judgment was poured out on the cross. Justice has been satisfied in the person of Jesus. Before you met Christ, you were due the full wages of your sin. But when you came to Christ, you'd have to, pray, you'd have to pay those wages because Jesus paid them on your behalf. We pray today because the heart of God is that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. <clears throat> but what could be so bad in this text, in Jeremiah 7, what could be so bad that Jeremiah is commanded not to pray for these people? Well, God answers the question for us there in verses 17 and 18. He says, do you not see what they're doing in the streets of Judah or in the cities of Judah, the streets of Jerusalem? Then this is kind of obscure text here. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. What we actually see happening here is that God's good design for the family is corrupted by gross idolatry. God's good design for the family is corrupted here by gross idolatry. And the picture of the prophet Jeremiah is painting for us, it's interesting, because we're on the outside looking in. <clears throat> we're like Ebenezer Scrooge eavesdropping on the home of Bob Cratchit. We're looking through the window. And we see this family on the inside doing what families do. And so we're on the outside, we're looking in, God has given us this view. And what we see is almost, it's almost a heartwarming image until we begin to understand what's happening. The children are happily gathering wood. The, the daddies are, are, are getting the fire ready because that's what daddies do because all grown men are actually little boys who are pyromaniacs. I mean, they, they may, you know, that's what dads do. We'll play with the fire, you know, we'll get the fire going. And mom is busy getting the cake ready to go in the oven. I mean, if, if I, all I painted was that picture for you, 
you'd be like, man, what a surreal image that is. What a, what a serene image that is. What a, what a beautiful picture that is. We've got a family working together to get a meal prepared. I mean, what a blessing to have the family together in the kitchen cooking dinner. No fighting, no whining, no groaning or complaining. Nobody looking and saying, I'm not gonna eat that. Nobody doing any of those things. It's a, I mean, you might look at this scene of serenity and if all I gave you were these verses, you'd say, man, I, I wish I could have that family time where we could gather around the, the, the kitchen and prepare the meal, where we could do this without any fussing or fighting. You'd think, I'd give anything for my spouse and my kids to be part of this team in the kitchen getting the meal ready. But this is no family meal they're preparing. This isn't Thanksgiving dinner that they're getting ready to put on the table. Jeremiah tells us that this family is busy making a meal that they can sacrifice, that they can offer to a pagan idol. So what looks to be a family working together to cook up something nice is actually an act of worship devoted to a pagan idol. And the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy has already established that these pagan idols are really just demons, so, so they're not false things, they're, they're real. Baal and Ashtoreth, Molech, all these idols that are named in the Old Testament, they're really just demons that are posing in that capacity. And whenever Israel pursued these fake gods, they were pursuing real demons. So here we have this quaint family activity. But the explicit purpose is to create a family offering to whichever demon is known as the queen of heaven. Now, we don't exactly know which goddess they're talking about here. We don't know which demon they're speaking of here. Ultimately, it doesn't matter which demon they're sacrificing to. She's known as the queen of heaven. An interesting side note, many Roman Catholics refer to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as this title, the queen of heaven. They treat her like some sort of a co-redeemer, which is interesting because that would be idolatrous to do so. And so to name her the queen of heaven may actually be a very appropriate title to give to her in that capacity. But one thing is for certain, these demon idols frequently required a gross form of worship that were often driven by all kinds of godless activity, everything from religious prostitution to child sacrifice. That was what worshiping these idols looked like in the Old Testament. And so here is this family gathering, bringing the firewood in, getting the fire ready, making the cakes to offer to an idol that wants nothing more than to destroy the family that's worshiping it. That's what her goal is. That's what the desire of that demon is, to destroy that family. But it gets even worse because it appears that they're trying to marry their pagan idolatry with worshiping the true and living God. How do we know that? Look at verse 21. God tells them to add their burnt offerings to the sacrifices and eat the flesh. That's Again, that's an obscure statement, but what's going on here? Derek Kidner, a theologian, points out that the burnt offering was Israelites' highest bid for atonement and his best bet for salvation from sin. The burnt offering was not to be eaten at all. Think about Elijah's offering on Mount Carmel. That offering was burnt up completely. That's what we're thinking about here. So what God is, is, is telling them here is don't bother with the burnt offering. Don't bother burning it up completely. If you're over here having a bake sale for the queen of heaven, I'm not interested in your burnt offering. 
So take your burnt offering, mix it with your sacrifice to the queen of heaven and have yourself an outdoor barbecue. That's what God is saying here. Your worship of me through the burnt offerings doesn't matter to me if you're offering sacrifices to the queen of heaven. Mix them together and have yourself a barbecue. You're far, far better off having a cookout with that offering than by bringing it to the temple to offer the Lord. And so we have this, this, these, these people who were trying to marry worship of the true and living God with their family's devotion to this, this, this demon idol. Well, then Jeremiah takes us back to the history of the people. And he says that God reminds them that his first concern was obedience. Before he ever gave them requirements for sacrifice, he gives them the 10 commandments. Sacrifice flowed out of obedience, not the other way around. Sacrifice apart from obedience was worthless. But here's what's happening among Jeremiah's people. It was gross disobedience that was attempting to be masked by empty offerings. We're as a family worshiping a pagan idol known as the queen of heaven, but we're gonna try to pretend that everything's okay because we're also gonna offer offerings, burnt offerings to the Lord. We're gonna mask our, our, our idolatry with feigned true religious devotion. The indictment against Jerusalem in this passage is simple. Verse 28 tells us this. You shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. The problem with the nation is they have abandoned truth and they have gone their own way. Where did it start? Well, here we find that it starts in the most basic unit of society, the family, and it flows out from there. It isn't hard to see the same patterns at work today. Philip Ryken said this, he said, families are made to worship together. They must worship. They cannot help but worship. A family may worship a thousand gods and goddesses, but it must worship. Ultimately, we're all worshipers and our families become a worshiping unit. And in our post-Christian age, Christian families ought to look different. Riken is spot on. There are thousands of things that are calling for our attention, thousands of things that are calling for our devotion. And if we understand that the family is the most basic structure of our society, then we also have to recognize that the family is the most basic structure of our churches as well. That's, again, we have singles and, and those sort of things, but the family unit is what makes up the bulk of, of our churches. And as families go, so go the churches and so go the nations. So it shouldn't surprise us to see a biblical vision of the family being assaulted today. And again, the statistics bear witness to the consequences of this assault. We could spend hours unpacking the statistics of our day. We understand things like, like our birth rates. Our birth rates are below replacement rate. You say, is that a problem? You better believe it's a problem. You better believe it's a problem. God tells us to... to exercise dominion and fill the earth. When we refuse to do what God says, even in the most basic creation mandate, how are we gonna to expect to be obedient in other things? Our children are living at home longer and longer and are failing to start their own families. There's uh, things called failure to launch where we have older and older children living at home. We don't even talk about our divorce rates anymore in 2024. And now we can even terminate our unborn babies with a mail order pill. That's the status of the family 
today. For the families that do manage to form and have children, the opportunities for idolatry are vast. From athletic pursuits that take on religious fervor to weekend hobbies that always trump participation in the local church to the pursuit of lifestyle goals that sacrifice the life of the family and the spiritual health of the family. For many, going after our idealized version of an American dream may actually be leading us into a spiritual nightmare. And though we're not baking cakes in the shape of some pagan goddess, we do have to ask the question, what are we conveying today as a being of utmost importance? Who or what is the God of our family? Who or what is the God of our marriage? Who or what is the God of our household? And we need to be able to honestly answer that question. Let's take a look at Jerusalem's families that Jeremiah is dealing with here. They're bringing their offering to the temple. We have to acknowledge that there is a facade of true worship. They are attempting to engage in true worship. But in their home life, the devotion of their home, their home activity, that which binds the home together is not their offering to Yahweh the Lord. That which binds their home together is their devotion to the queen of heaven. The kids are involved. The husband's involved. The wife is involved. Everyone in the home is involved in this act of devotion to this demon idol. They go to their temple but they've put their time, effort, and treasures into pagan cake baking. They showed up to the church, but they were communicating something very different in their homes. And they are teaching their children what is important because even the kids are involved in the bakery. And by doing so, they've completely rejected the truth. There's a hard question that we have to ask today, but it is one that Christian parents And even in today's day and time, Christian grandparents must begin asking, what are we teaching our kids is of utmost truth? Here's the thing. I can't answer that question for your family. I can't answer that question for your marriage. I can't answer that question in your circumstance. I can't tell you that this pursuit is bad and this pursuit is good. Truth be told, when we start to look at it, it starts to resemble a sliding scale in so many ways. That it's okay, it's okay, it's less okay, it's less okay, it's bad. And and that scale looks different for so many of us in so many different circumstances. I want to be clear here. I'm not opposed to athletic endeavors or hobbies or any of those other things. But what I am opposed to is idolatry. What I am opposed to is when we reject truth about God for lies about idols that creep into our lives. And what for one family may be a healthy involvement in sports for another family is a detrimental idol. And while I can't answer that for you, I do believe that the Holy Spirit can and will answer it if you will take the time to ask him and listen to his leadership in these matters. And what I can say is this, the further our society moves into this post-Christian era, the more Christian families are gonna be asked to make very hard decisions. We know that that is coming. At what point do you and your family look at the travel baseball coach and say, no more, we won't play on Sunday tournaments anymore? At what point do you and your family have that conversation? Or the alternative, coach, we'll we'll play in this tournament but we're gonna organize a time of worship and Bible study for the whole team before the first game. At what point do you and your family look at the high school football coach 
and say, my son will no longer be practicing past 6 p.m. on Wednesday night. I don't say these things lightly. Because it could be that those decisions, those conversations cost positions on the field or playing time or court time. It might even cost positions on the team. For some kids, it might even cost scholarships or advancement. But let me say this. Those conversations are coming if they're not already happening today. Let me say this. If you've not been on a Wednesday night back in the fall, there's this glorious sight that would happen every Wednesday night back in the fall. And at six o'clock every Wednesday night, there was this group of smelly, grungy high school boys that would come into our fellowship hall like a horde. And they would come to the kitchen and they would devour absolutely everything in the kitchen. And even after doing so, they would be bringing plates of food upstairs and sitting down in the cafeteria area that we've created upstairs and they would eat their food because they still made student ministry a priority. And if you didn't get to see that, you truly missed a blessing. And I wanna just say publicly to Roe and Carol and Phyllis and all those people in the kitchen, I appreciate how serious you took it to make sure that those guys had some food to eat so that they could go to student ministry and not skip it. Because those young men were willing to leave the field, skip the field house, come to church, having just nasty as all get out from practice. And you know what? We'll take all of them. Every single one of them. I don't care how bad they smell. Now, the people sitting next to them might care more than I do. I don't have to smell them. (laughs) Jacob might care more than I do, but I think we're good. They're making a decision. It'd be easy to go home, get a shower, get the homework done. They're making a decision to make church a priority. At the same time, these hard conversations are looming for school activities and athletics. I think we also have to acknowledge that those same hard conversations are starting to happen between adults and their HR departments. The employee says, I won't sign that compliance document. I do not agree with what you're asking me to sign. I do not agree with speaking this way. I do not agree with embracing dishonesty and forsaking the truth. I will not agree to compromise my convictions to meet whatever mandate is being handed down to me. Working on Sundays wasn't part of the original terms of my employment. Those hard conversations are beginning to happen. And for many, those hard conversations are going to come with economic consequences. That is the reality of our day. And I can promise you that if you're not facing those issues today, it's just a matter of time before you are. But if we're not making clear today who we serve as families, then it's gonna be a lot harder to face those decisions when they come tomorrow. Here's the thing. I can't tell you the right way to balance this. I can't tell you the right pathway to navigate all of these challenging things. But I will tell you this, as much as I can't tell you the right way, there's clearly some wrong ways. What are some wrong ways? One wrong way is to prioritize everything else over the gathering of the body. You prioritize everything else over the gathering of the body. And it doesn't matter what everything else is, it's more important than the gathering of the body. That's the wrong way to handle it. Another wrong way to handle it, and I'm not trying to step on toes, maybe I am. If I hit your toes, I'm aiming for your heart. 
The wrong way is to blame the church because your kids don't want to come if you're not willing to do the hard thing and make them come or make yourself come. It's the church's fault. It may not be the church's fault. It may be your fault for not forcing the conversation. The wrong way is to accept the status quo without giving any serious consideration about how to change it. What would happen if you stood up to the coach or the league or the program or the HR department? What would happen if you made the decision to fight against those things? And I'll say this, the wrong way is to let your own zeal for the Lord suffer while wondering why your kids aren't more zealous for the Lord. Gosh, my kids just don't seem to have, be spiritually motivated. Well, mom and dad, are you spiritually motivated? Are you setting an example for them in your own life and practice so that the children are motivated by what they see in you? You know, I've had the privilege of serving along some people who've made some tremendous sacrifices for their own religious service. Um, people with all kinds of goofy job schedules. I mean, our public safety people, paramedics, cops, firefighters, they have some of the goofiest schedules known to man. And every department's got its own goofy iteration of what the schedule looks like. I've seen police officers who will work the night shift on Saturday night. And they will get home after having done all the paperwork and dealt with all the stuff that they have to deal with. They'll get home just enough time to grab a shower and to bring their family to Sunday school and worship. And you could look in their eyes and you could see the fatigue, you could see the emotional weight of what they had to endure the night before. You could see all of that at work, but you could also see that they had resolved in their heart that they can sleep Sunday afternoon when everything's over. Nobody could blame them if they went home and went to sleep. I look at our, our police officers, man, they, they get pulled through the ringer in so many different ways. And if a police officer, pastor, I just, I'm, I'm exhausted. I need to go home. You absolutely need to go home. <laughs> no guilt, no, you know, no attempt to try to try. You know, you sure you want to go home and go to sleep after keeping us safe all night? Wouldn't you rather just come to church and try not to fall asleep during some boring sermon? I mean, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to look at that guy and say, absolutely, you go home and you sleep. You earned it. Nobody could blame them if they went home and went to bed. But you know what? They did the hard thing because in that situation, it was the right thing. And they decided, and that family decided, that it was more important for their children to understand what was of utmost importance. Every family has got to make this decision. Every family has got to decide what matters. At the same time, every family has to give an account for the decision that they reach. It may be as simply that we take old Joshua's words to Israel. I love Joshua. It's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. And what he says there as he speaks to the nation, it should have continued to ring true to Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day. But it should also continue to ring true for us today. You know what? You choose today. You choose who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word that is challenging. It 
asks hard questions. It causes us to look deep inside our own commitment to you. It causes us to look as families. It causes us to look at priorities. And it causes us to ask the question, what matters most? And Lord, we, we know there are a gazillion things that are calling for our attention. We are blessed in the sense that we live in a time where opportunities abound, where young people can be, grow and strengthen in their skills and abilities. They can play ball all the time. They can go to tournaments and meet other people who are exceptional in their sport and which makes them better. Lord, we live in a time where, where our workplaces are a time of prosperity unlike anything we've ever seen. But in so many ways and so many times, God, we are being asked to make some compromises along the way. Lord, I don't think any of us would say that a tournament here or there is a problem or a, a, a late coming in early on a Sunday to, to solve a problem at work is a problem. But Lord, I do think we'd have to ask the hard question is when does it become a problem? When are we no longer accomplishing what we need to accomplish from a faith standpoint because we're busy accomplishing things from athletics or career or academic standpoints? And so, Lord, I pray for the families of our church who are asking those hard questions and who are in the middle of trying to solve those difficult problems. Father, I pray that at the end of the day that we can come before you with a clean conscience. God, believing that we have done the very best for our kids and grandkids to point them to the Savior, to help them love his church, and to help them believe his word. I pray that we as a church would make sure that we do everything we can to make sure that young people and are, are introduced to a Savior who is inviting and winsome and, and compassionate and that we would convey the gospel as clearly as we can. But not that we would just feed them and feed them and feed them, God, but that we would also learn to deploy them into their schools and environments to be able to point others to the good news of Jesus. God, may we be worshiping families who worship the true and living God and that we would forsake all idols and serve you and you alone. May we choose today that we will serve the Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.